Welcome to 21 Wire Live. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you listen to the Sunday Wire uh, this past Sunday, uh, we had a fantastic conversation uh, with a special guest. We were talking about uh, the new space race. His name was Brian Berletic, but because of the constraints of radio and obviously not being able to uh, have the visual aspect uh, to the conversation, uh, we've invited him back uh, for uh, a separate segment here on 21 Wire Live. Uh, and we are streaming out live right now on YouTube, uh, also on Facebook, on our Facebook fan page, uh, and also on Periscope uh, via Twitter uh, as well. And joining us now on uh, the live link is uh, Brian Berletic. And I uh, wanted to welcome you uh, once again to 21 Wire Live. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you for having me. And, uh, well, we had a great conversation uh, on Sunday. Uh, for anybody that missed that, you can go back and uh, listen to that. But we're going to go into a little more detail. We're talking about the new space race, uh, the coming space race, which actually is it's here now. Uh, and you outlined some of this um, on Sunday's conversation. You've also got a featured article up at 21stCenturyWire.com, and we'll, we'll have a look at that as well. Uh, the article is entitled... Uh, the coming a space race. And uh, we wanted to also look at not only that, uh, but look at some of the, the issues there. There's political issues, Brian, there's geopolitical issues, which we'll talk about later. Uh, and then, but really a lot of the, the technology that's uh, come to the fore uh, in the last few years, uh, things are moving really rapidly here. We've got an image here from your, your article up at 21st Century Wire. You can see the different countries up here that are represented as some of the leading uh, nations in the space race. There's also corporations, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute here, but obviously leading the way the United States, China and Russia, uh, three major uh, players there in the new space race. And the European Union, you'll see India as well, uh, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, and also Japan uh, as well. But um, firstly, just uh, I know we uh, we spoke on Sunday, but uh, just give us a, a brief overview uh, of your general thoughts on this subject. So we, we were talking about how the original space race was a bipolar race, basically between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And I, I was talking about how that was mostly political, although there were obviously military implications. Uh, uh, a nation that's able to put a payload into space is able to put a nuclear warhead into space. And they're able to uh, use intercontinental ballistic missiles as sort of a, a check and balance uh, the, the uh, you know, a nuclear deterrence. Uh, but now space has become so important economically and not, and this is not just between the, the U S and now the Russian Federation who still have, very capable space programs, but this is uh, a race that many nations are joining. And even nations that don't have their own uh, space program are still able to, if they have the, the financial resources, hire companies to build satellites for them, put them into orbit, and then these countries are operating them. So uh, I live in Thailand, and Thailand actually has an agency that oversees the, the satellites that they pay people to build, design, and, and put up into orbit to take care of communications 
in, in Thailand and in the region. And as all of this technology continues to advance, we're, we're noticing that it's not just uh, advancing at a steady pace. It's the, the pace is accelerating. And uh, the, the radio show could not do any of the things we were talking about justice because when you just hear people talking about it, it sounds crazy. Uh, when we talked about SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket, its ability to launch a, a payload into orbit and then return to Earth and land on a, on a drone ship in the middle of the ocean under the power of its rocket engines. Uh, this is something that was science fiction. This was like the, the typical 1950s uh, space rocket from science fiction movies. This is something that is now happening. And if people don't don't see this, uh, it's it's hard to imagine. But even when you see it, it's hard to imagine that 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 is happening uh, because it's incredible and the size of that rocket. And uh, we were talking about uh, the swarms of satellites that they're putting in lower Earth orbit uh, because the the cost is uh, coming down to launch payloads into orbit. And the cost of building, designing, and building satellites is coming down. Uh, the technology is becoming cheaper and more capable. This is giving us uh, the ability to do things, to create constellations of satellites in orbit that were never possible before. So uh, this is what we're talking about, a, a new space race. There is still the geopolitical and military aspects of it. But now there is this uh, very center, I think, economic aspect to it as well. Yes, and we'll go into some of the details uh, of that as well. But, uh, you know, the other part of this is obviously <laughs> the the personalities uh, involved in this. And uh, that's also a big part of it. Certainly, if you look at uh, the previous industrial revolutions, uh, you know, you had the oligarchs, you had the Dale Carnegie's, you had the Rockefellers, uh, you know, the steel magnets, the railway barons, uh, who controlled the means of transportation, of distribution, uh, and the Henry Fords uh, as we got into the automotive sector. Uh, but now we have a new class, and um, certainly this has captured uh, the imagination of uh, quite a few people, uh, is you know Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, for instance. These are two of these uh, billionaires uh, who have come to the fore on this, and of course they're uh, quite popular in terms of the media. Uh, certainly Elon Musk is a kind of eccentric uh, character. Uh, so, you know, he's he's the corporate face. Jeff Bezos is the corporate face of of the new space race. Uh, so, so you know, firstly, you know, what do you think about, what do you think about the potential of the, where is, is there a balance between public and private? on on this you know or you know how do you see this shaping up uh, going forward uh, well patrick that's actually a really great way that you put it uh, comparing it to you know the the rail the railroad tycoons and uh, the steel and may, maybe even the the bankers uh, during the industrial revolution uh, we, we definitely do see uh, maybe shades of that especially with i think jeff Jeff Bezos, um, the, the, 
It's hard to tell what, what these people are really doing. We, we don't sit around the, the meeting table when they're planning things out. But uh, when if you've been following this new space race, if you've been following Elon Musk and SpaceX from the beginning, uh, he is he has a he has a passion for, for making people uh, a multi-planetary civilization creating the capability to have people living on, on multiple worlds instead of being just confined to the earth. And you can actually see that through everything that he does. Yes, you know, he plays hardball uh, with, in, in terms of business. Yeah, he gets involved with government contracts. He launches payloads for the Air Force. Uh, he, does, he does a lot of things that I, I guess if you're a person in that position and you're doing business on this scale, that you're going to have to do. And then on, on the other hand, you have someone like Jeff Bezos and you, you also have United Launch Alliance who kind of, both of them try to kind of channel Elon Musk, but without the, the genuine passion, it seems. And they, they try to present the same sort of big ideas, but then there's always this, if you scratch under the surface, you don't see, you don't see the, the years and years of dedication and, and passion that you would see with Elon Musk, what, whatever people think about him. And yes, he is eccentric. Yes, he does get himself in trouble uh, with a lot of the things he says and does. But you cannot deny that he is definitely passionate about getting people into space. So it's interesting to compare and contrast someone like Elon Musk and someone like Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, uh, if you if you watch his, his presentation for Blue Origin, and his plan to get people up into space. And he's talking about building space colonies. And uh, that, that presentation kind of uh, didn't really sway me, but I, I, I'm open to the idea that he might somewhere in the background care. I just think like his, his, you know, his other business interests kind of show another side of him. Uh, and just like the Industrial Revolution, anybody, uh, good or bad, has that much power in their hands. And if, these, if, if Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or both of them are able to realize these visions, this will, this will expand human economic activity in a way that has never been done before in, in, in the history of human civilization. So as they always say, uh, uh, great power comes with great responsibility. And, and do we trust these people? And where will the checks and balances be? And uh, actually, we'll probably end up talking about that, how there are actually a lot of checks and balances popping up in other countries that have seen what's going on in the U.S., are inspired by it, and are interested in, in competing seriously. Uh, yes, and, and uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, we don't know a lot about you know, the uh, ideological background of some of these people, if they have any ideologies, um, the, you know, what are their political leanings? I'm sure that in the case of Jeff Bezos being the owner of the Washington Post and uh, a major donor to the Democratic Party, you get an idea of uh, where his politics lies or his worldview. But, uh, you know, it's a tremendous uh, responsibility uh, when you're forming uh, this new, well, industrial revolution for starters. Uh, but what, what happens in space is really going to influence the economic development and destiny of what happens on Earth. There's no question about that. Uh, because what, what's interesting is that, and by the way, Jeff Bezos has always been a, 
you know, most people think of him as this, you know, this geek who started uh, selling books out of his garage and built Amazon.com into the uh, monopoly that's uh, basically devouring uh, Main Street retail as we speak and uh, devouring delivery and everything. So, you know, a full takeover on a planetary scale. And as you can see here, uh, he is quite a big thinker, uh, more than just, uh, you know, delivering your uh, cheap uh, electronic goods or books to your door. Uh, he's into other things, as you can see here uh, from this presentation, which I think is a real eye-opener. You've got this video in your article at 21stCenturyWire.com. It's very instructive. Um, so, but, you know, the, he has the money. He has the resources. Um, he knows how to build monopolies. As some of these people, like Bill Gates, Bessos, they, they're good at monopolizing uh, because they've come in uh, on the ascendancy of the technology of the internet. So they've managed to game like everybody in previously in history, uh, who has been a pioneer or has come at, right at the ascendancy of a new development in, in production. Uh, they've been able to game the system, uh, and create monopolies, but they won't always have probably have those monopolies. Not, not likely, uh, they'll be su succeeded by somebody else, but at the moment they've got the capital. They've got the uh, contracts. They've got the uh, the ability, the ownership, um, and so they're the ones who are going to be driving the private sector uh, on the space race here. And so, uh, certainly, that the things that he's showing here, Brian, these aren't likely to be all realized during his lifetime, are they? I mean, these are things that are uh, you're talking about, you know, thirty, fifty, a hundred years from now, right? It's it's actually it's really hard to tell if if uh, the development of this technology if the accelerate uh, if the the pace of development is linear then yes if it's exponential then it's really hard to tell because we have we have watched uh, for decades the the U.S. Russia and other spacefaring countries using expendable rockets. And there was really no progress at all in, in reusability. Uh, even the space shuttle, although in theory it was reusable, um, the, the amount of refurbishment between flights was, uh, was very significant. So it wasn't really it landing, turning around and launching again. There was a, a whole process that everything had to go through. Uh, and it was almost as expensive as if they just Built, built them one off and launched them. Uh, now with SpaceX, uh, again, people who have been following it from the beginning, I followed it since uh, they launched Falcon 1, which was this tiny rocket. They were launching it from a, a, an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They failed to get it into orbit. I think the, the very last try was the last try they had money for. And if they could not get this thing into orbit, they would have went out of business. And then from Falcon 1, they leaped to Falcon 9, which is this incredible, gigantic rocket uh, that, that it has now become the workhorse of, of U.S. launches, basically. And in the process of developing Falcon 9, that's when they gave it the, the reusability capabilities, the ability for it to take off and land vertically. And they are turning these around with very minimum refurbishment if, if any, and they're, they're getting some, some of them in around a month, turning it around in just a month. And as impressive as that is, SpaceX is working on 
Starship, which which we'll probably talk about more. Uh, Starship will be fully reusable and it'll be able to be turned around. Uh, what they're aiming for is to get it turned around in, in a day. To, to have spaceflight be as uh, reliable and as uh, quick to turn around as maybe a commercial airline. That's their goal. Whether they, uh, how long it takes them to realize that is, is up is up to debate, but you can already see the impressive progress they're making with that and, and the speed that they're developing this. This is not like uh, some people who, who, who watch space exploration might have heard about the space launch system that NASA has been working on since the space shuttle was retired a, a, a decade ago. And this thing is, they say that it's gonna fly soon, but they have not even tested, fully tested the, the engines on a test stand yet. Uh, that's the pace that space technology has been crawling at. And then when you see what SpaceX is doing, especially with Starship at Boca Chica, Texas, the, the breakneck pace. Uh, and, and, and you see people are getting really excited about this because of the pace, uh, because there's always something new happening almost uh, on, a, on a daily basis and major breakthroughs on an almost weekly basis, test fires of engines happening every week. Uh, the, the Starship program, I, they have two, two prototypes that have already uh, test flown, and they have another one on the test stand ready, ready to fly. And this has all been done over the course of a couple of months, not, not, not years, a couple of months. So uh, we, for Jeff some... Bezos, oh, oh, go ahead. sorry. Go ahead. I, I was gonna say uh, for Jeff Bezos uh, and his vision as big as it is, it's really hard to tell. Uh, because the pace of technology is is moving exponentially, not linear, uh, something like a gigantic revolving space station with you know using centripetal force to hold people down like like gravity that sounds crazy and like it would take a hundred years, but um, may, maybe not, maybe not. Yeah, well, we'll we got we'll show some footage of uh, some of the things that you've mentioned there, uh, but just to just to further lay the groundwork. Uh, about the you know the, the space economy, where's where's the utility? Where's the money uh, right now? Just on the sort of earthly, <laughs> on the earthly affairs, uh, the satellite array that, that you mentioned as well, uh, SpaceX's uh, Starlink project is planning to uh, deploy thousands of of these satellites. I think the uh, the FCC in the United States, the federal. Communications Commission have given a license for something like 12,000 of these small satellites that will be used uh, for a number of things. Probably there's the, the you know, providing high-speed broadband or, or 5G uh, broadband uh, to, to link into the, the, the 5G network. Um, and so, uh, and the license for a further 30-something thousand. So you're talking about in low Earth orbit here? Uh, full coverage. So this is this is uh, to, very much to do with the economy and affairs on Earth uh, as well. We'll talk about the space economy um, and the cislunar project uh, in a minute. But uh, just you know, what are your thoughts on on Starlink here? You know, what are the implications of this? Uh, I know that it's not just Elon Musk. I think Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, the Z, um, Internet Zero, I think it was called. They had a free internet project or internet.com or something 
Um, and that, that didn't uh, work out too well. However, the principle is uh, more or less the same, isn't it, of what, uh, what's going on here? Yes. So pe people, people may, may be aware of how much they already depend on, and on a sort of space-based economy. These, these constellations of satellites, uh, Starlink is a new kind of satellite internet, but there already is satellite internet. These are satellites that are very high up in orbit, and they stay over the same point of Earth uh, relative to the Earth. Uh, so as the Earth turns, the satellite is hovering over the same spot. So Thailand, for, for example, has TICOM satellites that hover over Thailand and the Southeast Asian region. These are used for t satellite telephone, relaying TV signals, and uh, internet, broadband internet. But because the satellite is so high up in orbit, the, the, the speeds are slower. So the idea of using satellites in low Earth orbit to reduce that speed, uh, the speed of the signal, which actually increases the speed of your internet, uh, this was never possible before because the cost of launching so many satellites uh, was, was prohibitive. When you launch a satellite in low Earth orbit, it cannot stay over the same spot of the Earth. It's, uh, it's moving too fast. It's constantly traveling over a new part of, of the Earth's surface. So you need to have a huge constellation with thousands of satellites. And they have a protocol where when one is moving away and another is moving in, it can pick up the signal. Uh, SpaceX's Starlink is going to have lasers that communicate between the satellites. And this will also help speed up the process and improve the interoperation of this, this, this constellation. And it's not just SpaceX. There is a Chinese company that is already launching satellites toward the same goal. There's, I think it's called OneWeb is another one. It's kind of struggling financially. Uh, it, it was handed over to, to other uh, business interests and they're trying to get that going. Uh, there's other companies that have expressed interest in doing this. You, you mentioned Facebook, and now that we can see what Facebook is actually all really about, it's kind of almost kind of scary to think of them having a free satellite internet that can circumvent uh, a nation's, you know, defenses for their information space. That that would be a very dangerous weaponization of of information technology. So we have all of these things happening already, and just think about it. Uh, especially with the, the COVID-19 lockdowns, uh, people are depending more and more on delivery and everything about deliveries is done with GPS satellites, uh, global positioning. Well, the US system is called GPS. These are navigation systems. Europe has their own network. Uh, Russia has theirs and China just finished building theirs. Uh, it's extremely important for delivery services, navigation, civilian navigation, but also military navigation. And could you imagine if the US monopolized navigational satellites? You could already see how they're cutting China off of everything else and, and Russia and Iran and everybody else, basically. Uh, if they did not have their own constellations, they would not have this ability. They would be at a serious disadvantage. So we, we can see not only the, the economic aspects of this space-based satellite economy, 
But we can already see the, the balance of power developing, the, the checks and balances that are necessary. During the radio show, we talked about anti-satellite missiles that every nation is taking turns testing. Uh, so it, just that alone is something that is already happening right now. Yeah, so that answers a, a whole uh, different uh, aspect of chaos theory. Uh, if people were shooting each other's satellites down, the debris fields uh, could be massively problematic, not just for the U.S. or the, or the dominant powers, China, whatever, but really for everybody. So it, it, there's a sort of a mutually assured destruction a, a, on a micro level aspect uh, to the, the, the debris in space issue, space junk which is absolutely fatal um, in, at certain levels of, of, of orbit for space stations and for lots of things for other, other satellites. So uh, absolutely deadly. But, you know, back to the, uh, the, the space economy, I think you kind of touched on it earlier, uh, Brian, you know, this idea of if you think about uh, when we were, uh, you know, younger, um, certainly when I was younger, uh, in the 1970s. Here's a picture here of 1976. This was the launch of the prototype of the USS Enterprise, uh, named after the uh, of Star Trek fame. Uh, this was the first space shuttle prototype, and they used to mount it on the back of a 747 uh, in order to do its first landings uh, to test it and so forth. Um, but this, this particular model didn't do a whole lot of miles in space, obviously, uh, but the subsequent space shuttles did, but this was the first reusable item. And uh, so, you know, when we were in the Apollo mission, if you grew up during the Apollo mission, you saw them in the Mercury mission, the Apollo mission, and the space shuttle missions uh, in, the, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was almost like a given in your mind that, you know, by the year 2000, uh, I would have been 30 years old and, um, I'm in second grade in elementary school, not far from Cape Canaveral. And uh, they, they used to have NASA people come to uh, talk to the students about the space program. I remember when I was a, a kid and Star Wars just came out, 1977. So everybody's imagination certainly really fired up. And they said, you're going to be 30 years old in the year 2000. And you will be living on uh, a, possibly a space colony by then. We will have already, uh, you know, made it to Mars and we'll build structures on Mars and exploring outer space to Alpha Centauri. And, and so, but none of that happened. <laughs> so that didn't happen. And instead, NASA and the space program really kind of regressed in a way, uh, at least in the 1990s, it seemed to be in, uh, culminating in the decommissioning of the space shuttle program. But it was the idea, the problem was, as you said before, the, the cost of putting a payload into space right now today, it's probably like uh, uh, per $6,000 per kilo, $10,000 per pound of payload. That's what it costs to put something out of the Earth's gravity uh, into outer space. That's hugely prohibitive. So, but if you can recycle the spacecraft or the rockets, uh, then that's the game changer. And so... And that, that's why we haven't progressed at that rate that you were talking about earlier is, is the reusability. But also, uh, one of the biggest things to transport is fuel as well. 
water. You can't, you can't have people in space without water. You can't have anything happening without propellant and fuel and uh, a lot of other things. So this leads us into the next uh, conversation, which is really the, the real economy of space, which has to do with making things in space here. And uh, we've just got a, a clip here of the, uh, I think this is Falcon launch, I believe. Uh, but we'll go ahead and, uh, we'll, you know, we'll play this in the background. But, you know, so, so how, how much of a game changer is this latest phase? This is, I believe, SpaceX's Falcon project, right? Yes, this is their Falcon Heavy, which is basically three Falcon 9 rockets strapped together uh, to give it a, a greater launch capacity. And this is, this is a rocket that they were developing, but then because of the Starship program, they're, 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 they're you know, betting everything on Starship now. But they still have Falcon Heavy launches scheduled. Uh, and, and you will see in this video, you will see two of the, at least two of the boosters coming back and landing simultaneously. It's very hard to, when we were talking about on the radio, it's impossible to imagine. You have to see it. And you, you can see in these pictures how big those boosters are. They're like skyscrapers screaming back through the atmosphere and just landing under their own power. It's incredible. And uh, I, think, I think it's a combination of, obviously, we, we needed reusable launch capabilities to make this more effective economically. Uh, when I was researching that article, you sent me an article about uh, Northrop Grumman and their plan to replace all of the silo nuclear missiles in the U.S. I think it's something like 600 missiles. And you could just see just how utterly corrupt and uh, wasteful the U.S. aerospace industry is. Just that example. And if you look at Boeing and Lockheed, who are now united as the United Launch Alliance, how, how wasteful, how slow they are, how over budget and behind schedule. And they do this deliberately because it's a company owned by people who are investors. All they want is to squeeze every penny out of that company possible. They don't, they don't really care about innovation beyond being able to, to at least outcompete maybe uh, other, other, other countries. But in the US, they had basically a monopoly. Now that SpaceX is here, doing these things, all of these other companies have to reevaluate that, that business model of just parasitically feeding off of the taxpayers. Now they have to innovate or they're going to go out of business. That's why we see this acceleration. Uh, I think it was artificially arrested. You know, when, when we saw the, the Apollo program, how much progress they made from, from Mercury to Gemini to Apollo and then to the space shuttle. And then it, it, just, it just stopped. And I, I think that was artificial. But yes, now that we have reusability, SpaceX is doing reusability. Jeff Bezos's uh, new Glenn rocket, which will also be one of these enormous rockets, that first stage is supposed to be reusable. Russia is working on a rocket called Amur, which will look very similar to Falcon 9. China is working on reusability. So these are going to be not just the US, but multiple countries with this capability able to send more into space for cheaper. And this, this will be what kicks off the, uh, the, the, the big space economy that we always imagined and we always see depicted in science fiction. 
So uh, the, the CIS lunar proposal by United Launch Alliance, uh, even though what United Launch Alliance is doing in terms of rockets is not very inspiring, that proposal kind of is, you know, whether they can do it or not, that's another question. But we, we already see other companies that probably will be able to do it. And they're talking about utilizing resources in space. So you have the, the reusable rockets, and then you're using resources in space, meaning you don't actually have to launch that much up into space. You need to launch the, the tools to exploit those resources and the people and, and everything else, in theory, you're supposed to be able to get from the surface of the moon or near Earth asteroids. We're going to take a look at the, the Falcon launch here. We've got a, a, a clip of it as well. We're going to play this. Uh, then we'll get your, your comments on this afterwards. Here it is. Uh, this is, I believe this is 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, this is one of the, uh, the big uh, landmark uh, uh, launches here. But we'll go ahead and roll this. Launch director on countdown one. SpaceX, Falcon Heavy, go for launch. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. E minus 15, standby for terminal count. 10, 9, 8, Side booster ignition. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, So that was uh, that was that launch. Now the the really fascinating part of this, Brian, comes after, uh, and this is how they're reusing uh, the rockets here. And I think we've got some some footage of that here. So just uh, tell us what's going on here. I think this is the uh, the first, if I'm not mistaken, the first vertical uh, uh, launch here. Uh, we'll just take a look at this footage. So um, so what what's happening here? Uh, so this is so this is the Falcon heavy launch. So these are two Falcon 9 boosters coming down at the same time. Uh, those are two different views from the two different boosters. You can see them landing almost at the same time. Uh, this was not actually the first time they landed these boosters, but this is the first time they landed two at the same time. There was a third booster uh, that went out to sea and tried to land on a barge, but it wasn't able to. And that's because uh, the, the uh, you know, the fuel and the range. Um, sometimes they will tr return to the pad like this. Sometimes they will land on the barge and that center booster was just overstressed and, and they didn't really expect to recover that one. Uh, these two, as you see, they landed flawlessly and 
SpaceX regularly does this with their with their Falcon 9, the, the single booster. They regularly do this. They have uh, launched and recovered some of their boosters, I think up to eight times now. And they're designed to do it 10 times before a major refurbishment. But after that refurbishment, they can keep keep going. So it's it's an incredible capability. No other country, no other company even comes close to this. So, so how, how big of an economic game changer is this? I mean, uh, what, you know, what's the percentage of the cost of having, you know, if, if you're burning through these rockets and not recycling them, um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's massive, isn't it? It, it? it is. I don't, I don't have the exact numbers. People can, can go look it up. But when you see the numbers and you compare it to expendable rockets like for United Launch Alliance, it's, it's a no-brainer that if you, were, uh, if you were in charge of giving money out and you were actually trying to be economical, you would give all of your contracts to SpaceX. Now, it, it kind of makes sense to, for a country not to have just one launch provider. And even countries like Russia or China, where things are, you, you, you are allegedly more centralized, they also have multiple launch providers. Uh, but it's... It's just no competition between SpaceX's rockets, their capabilities, uh, the reliability, and the, and the cost. When you add all that together, it, it doesn't even make sense to hire anyone else to do anything else. But, but they do. It's part lobbying, and it's also part uh, what I said about having multiple launch providers. Uh, now, I've got, I, I just quickly, I've got the footage, I think, of one of the successful landings at sea. On, yeah. on the sea drone, uh, and if you can uh, walk us through this, I'll just uh, we'll call this up here on the, uh, the screen here. I think this is a sea drone landing here, but uh, tell us what's going on uh, here. This is just before on its way down. So for the the drone, the landing on the drones at sea, uh, again, it's it's out. It doesn't have enough fuel to return back to the to the launch pad. So by putting the drone out at sea and having it land like that, they're they're able to get more, you know, more payload into orbit and then land it and still land it without having to waste that extra fuel to come back because it has to do a burn as it's going through the atmosphere. It it has something like heat shielding on it, but. The, the actual rocket blast, even though it seems counterintuitive, the actual rocket blast as it's coming through the atmosphere helps shield the, the actual structure of the rocket from, from that reentry heat. And then it does this last burn right before it lands. And then a little robotic gra grappler comes and grabs it because it's in the ocean. And I, I believe it takes a couple of days to get it back to port. And then they they process it, they get it ready, and then they fly it again. And and again, like I said, even when you see it, uh, videos of it, it's still kind of hard to believe that, especially when you really wrap your mind around how big that booster is. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, it is. I mean, I can't imagine the the obviously the excitement of the teams working on this to be the first uh, to deploy this technology. Um, considering what a game changer it is for everything else after that. So you can see the, uh, the, the excitement of the team there at uh, SpaceX and at NASA as well, who they're working with. Uh, so Ch China is also uh, have, has a version of this. Uh, let's see if we can uh, get that up on screen. But um, you know, how far along are the Chinese 
on this type of technology because they also have had successful tests on vertical takeoff and landing um, in the same motion as well. But, um, you know, are, are the Chinese a few years behind us? Are they going to catch up and surpass the United States? Where, where do you think China is on, on this? So there's, it's, it's interesting, the, the state space launch capability in China, they're looking at reusability, but, but in a very limited way. China also has, even though, you know, it's depicted as this centralized communist country, they have a lot of private space companies, a, a lot, and there's more popping up all the time. And they do get state backing, but that's, you know, it's like SpaceX and Blue Origin in, in the U.S., uh, this company here, I believe this is, uh, is this iSpace? I, I, be I believe there's um, two companies that are working to do these reusable rockets, and they both have launched payloads into orbit successfully with expendable rockets. So these are already viable space launch companies, and now they're working on reusability. So this is a very uh, crude prototype. It would have to be much bigger than this in order to, to match the capabilities of, of SpaceX. But if you saw SpaceX developing their uh, reusability capabilities, um, they had this thing called, I think it was called Grasshopper. And it was a very crude rocket, kind of like this. It was, it was much bigger. And that's, that's all it did was take off, go up a little bit, not really into space, and then come down. And they were working out how to do all of this. And then they were able to, to scale that into a, a actual launch capable system. So China could be, could be um, maybe, maybe this year, maybe next year, we could see them do a successful test and then see them start putting commercial payloads into orbit uh, after that. So, so it's a very close, I think it's a very close race. Russia is also, I said, developing one uh, that was that's probably going to be a little bit further down the road. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Russia, very advanced in aeronautical engineering and space. Uh, in fact, they, they've been providing taxi service uh, for United States astronauts, for NASA, for other countries, to bring people up to the uh, International Space Station with the Soyuz rockets that they have, uh, which are still you know, state-of-the-art uh, in, many, in many ways. Um, so, you know, where, where do you think Russia is on, on this uh, in terms of, is there, do you think there's going to be a privatized uh, aspect uh, to the Russian space program as well? Uh, I know they have a great state space agency, but um, are they, is it going to stay more public, do you think, with, uh, with Russia? I, I, I haven't really heard much about that. Um, the, the Soyuz launch system, they, they launch people, they launch resupply missions to the, the space station. They also launch commercial and government. Russia has other rockets that, that do this. They're also developing uh, several different kinds of new rockets, heavy, heavy lift, um, something to kind of maybe augment the Soyuz program. Uh, and, and yes, they were launching U.S. astronauts. They were, they were being paid by the U.S. government to launch U.S. astronauts uh, to the space station. And that was until SpaceX made their Crew Dragon capsule. And that's also launched using their Falcon 9. And, and those launches also recovered the booster. So that, again, that's an incredible capability. 
something else people might not realize is that United Launch Alliance, the, the Boeing-Lockheed joint venture, their Atlas V actually uses rockets uh, designed by Russia. And it's uh, like a joint, the, the, the ones that they actually put on the Atlas V rockets are actually a joint venture between a Russian and an American company. People don't, don't really know that, but that's, that's their dirty secret, I guess that they're actually flying on Russian rockets because the Russians do really make uh, state-of-the-art and, and solid and reliable rocket engines. And to tell us about the SN8. We've got some footage of the SN8 uh, and the SN9 here. Just describe what, what's happening right here. Okay, so uh, this is SpaceX's next launch system that they're working on. And I, I have to stress that this is a prototype. There's nobody on this. They didn't expect it to succeed. Uh, they're working out a lot of things that have never, never been done. Uh, it looks small in the picture, but this is actually as tall as a 15-story building. That's how big it is. And this is the second stage. The first stage booster that this is actually going to ride on top is even bigger than that. So this will be, when it's fully assembled, the largest, most powerful rocket ever made in history. Uh, it will be fully reusable. The booster will will put this, this second stage that you see uh, into orbit, and then it'll return and land like a Falcon 9. And then this second stage is also designed to, to re-enter and land under its own propulsion. And it's specifically designed not, not just to do all of the things that, that rockets do now. It's specifically designed to send people to Mars and to send payloads so, so large uh, to Mars that it'll enable people to build, to build a city there, not just, not just plant a flag or, or put footprints on Mars, but to actually build a society, a civilization on Mars. Uh, something else that uh, people might not know is that NASA is trying to return people to the moon, and SpaceX was actually uh, one of the, the competitors for the, the human lander, and they will use a version of Starship, this second stage that we see to do that. So uh, this, is, this is, you know, an incredible project that they're working on. And like I said, there are, there are milestones being reached almost weekly with this program. So um, you, you were kind of talking about the atmosphere in the SpaceX control room. And uh, this has the, the, their style, you were talking about uh, earlier before the show, their style of presenting this to the public and getting the public excited about this. And because I've been following it, I, I follow a lot of independent, uh, you, you know, the traditional corporate media, uh, very poor coverage of all of this. Uh, that These are journalists that don't really have any clue technically what's going on. They present basically a press release, uh, a, a watered down and sometimes inaccurate press release. Uh, there has been this entire kind of industry of independent media covering this new space race. Uh, one of my favorite is uh, nasaspaceflight.com, and they are covering what's going on with the SpaceX program in Boca Chica, Texas, the Starship program. And they're doing, you know, testing the engines, uh, these test flights, they're covering this. They have incredible footage that, that is all, and it's all crowds, crowdsourced. You know, this is something the public is getting behind and helping fund for these people to go out and document this. Uh, so it's 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 incredible because we didn't really see we 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 
you know, when we were growing up, we, we knew people who were enthusiastic about it. I know I was, uh, but you didn't see people being able to get involved on this sort of level. Now we, we see that. So it's another part of this new space race uh, that we haven't seen any uh, before. And it's very interesting, I think. So I've got a clip here from uh, one of the launches. I think this was a Falcon. might have been the first. Uh, it was probably 2018, I think. And it's a real like Super Bowl atmosphere. I mean, the way that uh, Elon Musk and, and the SpaceX PR uh, department, marketing department, they, they turned it into a, a, a real sporting event. I mean, really hyping it up uh, in a way that, you know, it's nothing like what we've seen uh, in the past with, with NASA, for instance. So, uh, and there's a lot of youthful vigor in it. We're going to play this clip here. It's, it's, it's like, it's like the run up to the NCAA basketball tournament. I mean, the way that they're generating the hype, but, uh, go watch this. We're going to roll this, this clip for a minute. You are looking at a live view of the Falcon heavy. Yes. The Falcon heavy on historic pad 39A at Kennedy space center awaiting liftoff at 3:45 PM local time. Welcome to our live launch webcast. My name is Lauren Lyons. I'm an engineer in our flight reliability department here at SpaceX. I am so excited to be here with you today, along with my co-hosts, bringing you coverage of the first ever test flight of Falcon Heavy. At liftoff, Falcon Heavy is going to be the world's most powerful operational rocket by a factor of two. And today is the day that we attempt to demonstrate that power. And because it is a test flight, there is no satellite customer on board the vehicle today, but the fairing is not empty. We do have some very interesting payloads going up on this flight that we'll talk about later on in the webcast. We'll also walk you through the mission profile because this ain't your typical Falcon launch. We've got 28 engines, three boosters, three separation events, three landing attempts, and there's gonna be a lot of activity happening all at once. So this test flight is bound to be exciting one way or another. All right, we've got a ton to walk you through today, so let's get going. Hi, I'm Michael Hammersley, a materials engineer in the avionics department. <laughs> the, we're very excited. I'm sure you can hear it. Um, to my right, we have a live view of Falcon Heavy on the pad at Kennedy Space Center. <laughs> That's, I mean, unbelievable. I mean, they've got, uh, I don't know how many hundreds of people there thousands of people out um, by the launch site and really uh, generating a lot of excitement here. This, this sexy young female engineer presenting on camera. I mean, it's unbelievable. So uh, I think from that point of view, um, you know, in, in terms of the, on the privatized side, I don't think you would, you wouldn't see this type of thing on a public um, government run space program. So, I mean, that's, is this is, is this the shape of things to come with Mars missions, with uh, the Lunar Project, and, and how they sell this to to people uh, in different countries? I, I think uh, you will see a lot of this. And uh, if you follow other private space companies, they some of them try to kind of copy SpaceX. Some of them have their own style, and it's it's entertaining and it's interesting. It might might not be as crazy as that. And by the way, that launch, uh, the test payload, because when, when they launch a, a new vehicle for the first time, they have to put some kind of test payload to, to simulate the weight of an actual satellite that they would be launching for a customer. Uh, usually, 
you know, NASA or Boeing or Lockheed, they would just put like a big chunk of metal in there. Uh, Elon Musk put his Tesla Roadster in there. He, he launched his Tesla Roadster car into space, into an orbit that, that would send it past Mars. That's, that's what he did. So it was like an extra, you know, it was another part of that uh, showmanship, I guess you could say, uh, that really helps connect with the public and, and get the public excited about it. Uh, if we, you know, if we believe that our future is in space and we want to see progress continue and we don't want to enter another period of stagnation like we did after Apollo, uh, I think it's very important that, that companies do this. And, you know, it makes perfect business sense for SpaceX also. The more excited people are and the more they're, they're pulling for this uh, direction, you know, instead of wasting money on, on endless wars, maybe we can throw money at this instead. It, at least it's something we, we can get something out of. We, we could watch it together and, you know, like a war is terrible. This, if you, maybe some people think it's wasteful, but at least, at least it's not as bad as the, the forever wars. So I, I think it's something that people are naturally excited about. And I think this kind of showmanship is going to help speed that along. I think other companies are going to learn from SpaceX that this is a very effective business strategy also. And uh, just, just to remind people, though, and uh, as you are well aware as well, Brian, this industry, these types of ventures are not for the faint-hearted. Uh, these aren't for investors that are going to freak out if there's a crash, if there's a loss of life. This is par for the course. Here's the SN9 high-altitude test flight. And I remember uh, this made the news. And I don't know, Elon Musk, everyone said he was ruined. Um, and this happened so many times. Uh, they, uh, the, all the, the investor newsletters I get, every every other day, the headlines, Elon Musk is ruined. Elon Musk, and he, he, he seems to bounce back every time. But um, have a look at this. Tell us what's what's happening here with this just before this well tragic uh tragic uh miss landing here okay <laughs> so again uh this is a this is a test flight there's nobody on this uh, there's nobody anywhere near this they evacuated everything for miles around and they knew that it was most likely not going to be successful and what they're doing with this is when it re-enters the atmosphere when when this thing actually starts going into space it will fall horizontally like this uh, and reach terminal velocity, but because it's horizontal, it's doing this kind of belly flop maneuver and you see those, those fins, those surfaces, control surfaces. This is how it guides itself down to where it needs to land. And then at the very last moment, it'll ignite its engines, it'll flip the bottom out so that it's facing, so that the whole thing is vertical and it'll land just like we saw those Falcon 9 boosters. Now, it's a very tricky maneuver. Nothing like it has ever been done before. So now there have been two attempts. The first one was actually closer than the second one, but you know, there, it's a learning process. So they have to go through this. And just like you said, uh, when you see the, the, the corporate media cover this, uh, they like to take these, these cheap digs at SpaceX and Elon Musk, uh, but this is what you actually need to do to innovate. Uh, somebody like Boeing or Lockheed wants to fly the same rocket for three decades. Uh, that's safe for, for investors. It's not safe for, it's not, it's not a good strategy for innovation though. If you want to innovate, 
you you have to do things like this. You have to have a risky program. When we say risky, we mean yes, you're you're spending money to build these prototypes. The prototype uh, is prepared for months, and then it flies for six minutes, and then it blows up. Uh, if you want to really innovate, if you want to continue moving hum human. Uh, the human species forward. This is what you have to do. And uh, they always say the people who take the biggest risks get the biggest rewards. I think Elon Musk has proven that over and over and over again. I don't know how many times people have said, you will never land a, a first stage booster. It will never happen. It's impossible. He had, he had engineers in the aerospace industry tell him that, not just ordinary people that didn't like him. He had engineers telling him that. And now he does it on a regular basis. And now we hear people say, oh, he's, you know, he keeps crashing these uh, Starship prototypes. You know, this program is never going to work. But uh, we, we have to wait to see a successful test. But I, I, don't, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that eventually they will figure it out. These are, these are brilliant engineers, and they've proven uh, that they can do these things over and over again. So I, I think we'll just wait and see. I think we'll see some incredible things from the Starship program. And uh, so let, let's let's talk about the advanced. Let's get into the really uh, the meat of this conversation, which is the advanced space economy. Uh, so the Cislunar project, Cislunar One Thousand, uh, and I think United Launch Alliance, uh, that consortium, uh, they are definitely um, you know this is their big marquee initiative, uh, and this is attracting a lot of uh, attention and investment. Uh, and their idea is to operationalize some kind of economy uh, in space between the Earth and the Moon. Just, just explain to us, uh, you know, what your uh, understanding is in, in a nutshell, and then we'll play a clip from one of the engineers from ULA. But um, what, what, is the, what does cislunar mean? So cislunar is the space between the Earth and the Moon, and so cislunar 1000 is uh, ULA's, idea, their proposal of creating an economy in, in that space between the Earth and the Moon and including the Moon and, and to have a thousand people living and working in space. So right now we have the International Space Station that has been in orbit and inhabited by people permanently for 20 years now, uh, maybe I think over 20 years now. Uh, this, but that, that is usually three to six people at a time. We're talking about a thousand people living and working in space. And then, of course, they're building the, the foundation for having many, many more people join them. And so this uh, ULA proposal is it's a couple of things. Their, their main focus is creating, creating fuel in space using materials found in space. So on the moon, there's water. So they're talking about doing processes to transform that water into fuel, into propellant used by, by different modes of transportation between the, the moon and the earth, between different objects in, in different orbits. Uh, there's going to be different space stations. There's the International Space Station. There will be, uh, there's going to be a Chinese space station soon. And they're talking about a lunar gateway, which will be a, a, another space station closer to the moon to help facilitate all of this. So these are things that are actually in the process of being done right now. There's hardware being built for some of these things. Uh, ULA's role in all of this is the second stage of their rocket uh, will be reusable. So it'll, it'll launch on an ex 
an expendable first stage. Once it reaches orbit, they plan to be able to refuel that and to use it kind of like a, a space truck to move things around in Earth orbit, to, to go from Earth to the moon, and uh, to facilitate the transportation. And their proposal specifically mentions the need for other companies to get involved uh, building the Lunar Gateway Station, building the infrastructure on the moon to do the fuel processing. And of course, I, I was talking about near-Earth asteroids. These are basically gigantic mineral and ore mines just floating in space. You don't have to dig under the Earth to reach it. It's just sitting there. And all, all people have to do is develop the technology to reach and exploit those resources. And, and when you think of just a mountain of minerals and ore floating in space, what could you use that for? That's where Jeff Bezos's, you know, gigantic rotating space stations come into play. Well, here, here's, a, here's a clip from one of the uh, uh, head engineers at ULA explaining the first, the first phase of uh, Cislunar uh, 1000. We'll listen to this and we'll get your comment afterwards. So Cislunar 1000 is a little bit of science and science fiction. All great science fiction is based on good science. The key to the long-term success of the space enterprise is creating a self-sustained economy. Uh, Cislunar 1000 is one idea or model for how such a self-sustained economy could be accomplished. The 1,000 refers to 1,000 people potentially living and working in space within the next 30 years. Today, there are six people living aboard the International Space Station in low Earth orbit conducting research. There are also communications, research, and imaging satellites in a variety of orbits, as well as science and exploration spacecraft in locations throughout our solar system, all delivered to orbit by expendable launch vehicles. Last year, the gross space product, the value of goods and services space contributes to our overall economy, was $330 billion. However, the types of activities conducted in space have remained relatively unchanged for decades. But now we believe that technology has progressed to the point where we are on the verge of unlocking new space industries that will allow the space economy to grow dramatically in the coming years. In the next five years, the space population will expand to approximately 20 by adding commercial habitats, conducting commercial research, and manufacturing, including enhanced fibers, improved computer chips, and the production of goods supporting in-space consumption. Like the pioneers that settled the American West, prospecting, in this case, on the lunar surface and at asteroids, will demonstrate where the resources are and how they might support in-space activities. Mining spent stages or spacecraft in orbit is likely to be an early opportunity. The increased capability of the Vulcan rocket and the Advanced Cryogenic Evolved Stage, or ACES, enables the ability to conduct longer duration missions, which provides access to these raw materials. The ongoing reduction in the cost of access to space, benefited by smart engine reuse, will enable early entrepreneurs to start and grow their space businesses. At the end of this phase, the gross space product will grow to $500 billion. So uh, significant and also significant because as they're saying, uh, Brian, it's not about extracting uh, materials on Earth and the costs involved with that and so forth. Uh, in, well, there's another environmental space debate with regards to pollution and harvesting the, uh, the minerals on 
on, on the moon, for instance, or uh, uh, other planetary bodies. That's another conversation I'm sure that will uh, humanity will have to uh, face at some point in the future, uh, no doubt. But it's interesting. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it potentially will generate new wealth uh, in, a, in a way that's unprecedented. But, uh, you know, your, your, your thoughts on this. Yes. Um, so that, that proposal, there's actually uh, at least one aspect of it that's already uh, ha happening. In, you know, the tentative first steps toward that. There have been uh, automated satellites that grapple onto uh, old satellites that have run out of propellant and they actually refuel them. They service the satellite, basically. This was something that, that wasn't done before. Uh, and then uh, that satellite is able to extend its, its lifespan. Uh, so that was part of the, the proposal we just heard mentioned. So that's something that, since they made that proposal, that has happened. I don't, I don't think that it was United Launch Alliance that did it. I think it was Northrop Grumman, but that's something that has, that has happened. Uh, we see, we see the launch capabilities. So, so they were talking about their Vulcan rocket, which is expendable. But we, we see SpaceX already has reusable rockets that can get all of, all of these things that they're talking about up into orbit uh, cheaper, much cheaper. And when, when Starship comes online, much more and much cheaper. So this is something that, that they said 30 years uh, for United Launch Alliance and, and traditional you know, companies taking that traditional uh, careful uh, investor shareholder approach. Yes, maybe 30 years, but I think it could happen faster, especially with other countries getting involved. Like I said, China plans on launching the first segment of its own space station into orbit this, this year. So uh, just look at all of the infrastructure projects China has been doing here on Earth and then imagine the, the, the energy and scale of that being done in space with access to those resources on those asteroids. And uh, something else, some people might say, well, mining asteroids sounds crazy, but uh, we were talking before about the two Japanese missions and one NASA mission that have actually gone to asteroids, touched down on their surfaces, retrieved material. The two Japanese missions have actually already returned that material to Earth for study, and NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission is on its way back to Earth now. So... Uh, these are the, the first steps. These are things that we have to do before we get to that, that CIS Lunar 1000 proposal or before we start doing some of the things Jeff Bezos was talking about or building that colony on Mars like Elon Musk talks about. Yeah, here's uh, some footage here of a uh, uh, Chinese uh, space agency, I believe, launching um, uh, rockets with uh, satellite payloads uh, here. Uh, but again, um, these are sort of historic uh, events. I mean, people take it for granted. We don't get a lot of coverage of what Russia or what China is doing in terms of space exploration and um, passing massive milestones themselves. But they're doing it. They're, they're, they're passing milestones also uh, every month uh, as well. So, uh, you know, what, what about the international um, competition aspect of this, uh, you know, in terms of technology, do you envision a point where um, China could potentially surpass the United States in terms of the way the U.S. has led the digital economy 
uh, that someone like China uh, could lead the space economy at some point in the future? I think actually Elon Musk said it best himself. You know, he was talking, he was talking to an Air Force general. I think it was about uh, Space Force. Uh, and, you know, the, the general was all about how can we stop China? How can we contain China? And, and Elon Musk basically said China is, is a bigger country than the U.S. has many times the population. These are hardworking people. Uh, who have great ideas and they are definitely, their economy is definitely going to be many times larger than the US. That is inevitable. And so uh, I think that, yes, it's inevitable that China is going to surpass the US in, in every aspect. Uh, but, but also, you know, a company like SpaceX is innovating so quickly uh, and, and, and already leading everybody. And if they continue that pace, uh, China will be able to follow and, and develop the same capabilities, but at a slower pace. But, I, but a lot of people, you know, a lot of people in the space industry, and if you, if you look at NASA, NASA is one of the rare government organizations in the, in the US that actually is able to work with people from, from Russia. Not, not so much China, but not, not because of NASA's own uh, desire to, to reduce those relationships, but because of Washington's. Uh, but, but people in, involved in the space industry in general have this idea that, you know, all ships rise with the tide and that, that anyone's success is everyone's success. So when they see SpaceX doing these breakthroughs and, and, and again, at that same talk, the, the general was, you know, repeating the, the talking points about China stealing intellectual property. And, and Elon Musk said, you know, they put their patents out for free. They don't care. Uh, because they're confident that they can continue innovating faster. And then if people are copying um, that technology, following in the footsteps, his goal is to put people on Mars. So is that goal going to accelerate with more people involved? Yes, of course. So, so it just goes to show you the different mentality uh, of different companies and different interests. You know, like, like we were talking about Jeff Bezos and, and the fact that he owns the Washington Post is like a very telltale sign. Of, of where his mindset is and how he fits in. And you look at United Launch Alliance and some of the shady uh, lobbying that they were doing to try to keep SpaceX out of certain contracts. Uh, so it is, it's a very interesting industry to follow because there's, there's so much variety. And, and China, again, such a huge country and catching up in, in every other aspect and, and in many cases already surpassing the US. Uh, which is why we have this trade war. And so in the space industry, why, why would it be any different? Yes, yeah, it's it, absolutely. I mean, looking ahead, uh, looking at the potential size of the uh, space economy and looking at the, the speed at which China is uh, developing uh, technologically, also having the infrastructure, having the uh, intellectual infrastructure, all the, the engineering infrastructure, the university, the academic the science, the STEMs uh, infrastructure that China has is unbelievable. Uh, the amount of PhDs and uh, graduates they have uh, in one year is the equivalent of what the U.S. and you know and its allies would produce in ten years, or something like that. So it's uh, incredible. Uh, but we'll look at here's phase two, uh, the next phase or part three actually of the cis lunar project. We'll play this. Uh, this is very interesting. 
So ULA is developing a new upper stage called ACES. Uh, that stage is designed to be fully reusable if it can be refueled. And once we launch an ACES into space, we can refuel it from propellant sourced on the surface of the moon, and the cost to transport things anywhere in cislunar space becomes dramatically reduced. In the subsequent 10 years, we really start to see progress as the lunar surface comes into play. With some of the basic infrastructure in place, there will be several hundred people living in space, and space tourism will be flourishing in low Earth orbit. Enabled by on-orbit propellant storage and refueling, an in-space transportation system will be established, which allows us to land mining and manufacturing equipment on the moon via Zeus. Zeus adds a simple mission kit to ULA's basic ACES upper stage that allows it to efficiently deliver over 10 metric tons to the lunar surface. Extraction of water from the lunar poles or asteroids for propellant will fuel the transportation system and drive the cislunar economy. Zeus can deliver over 70 metric tons of lunar refined liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen propellants from the lunar surface to Earth-Moon L1 at one thousandth the cost of delivery from Earth. Maintenance and operations of this new economy are conducted in Earth-Moon L1 orbit between the Earth and the Moon or some other lunar stable orbit. By completion of Phase 3, the gross space product will have nearly doubled to $900 billion annually. The single greatest benefit of Part 3 is the availability of propellant that doesn't have to be lifted from the surface of the Earth. Now that's a true game changer. It will dramatically lower the cost of transportation by as much as a factor of a thousand. Okay, that's uh, pretty significant. Lower the cost of transportation by a factor of a thousand. Uh, and now we're up to a trillion dollars uh, per year that's being produced by the cislunar economy. That's phase, that's the following phase. Uh, so yeah, we're getting into, at this point, at this point, uh, things would reach, uh, would start gaining traction and would have its own inertia uh, going forward. Uh, you know, the like you said, where where is the investment money going to to follow? Where is it? You know, today it's in tech and it's in uh, internet uh, technologies and and digital app, apps and things like this. Uh, all of a sudden, things are shifting. Thirty years from now, the, the a lot of money's going in that direction. Um, so, I mean, that's just uh, an unbelievable paradigm shift globally, I think. But uh, your thoughts on that? Yes. Yeah, so um, SpaceX's Starship, again, to go back to that, uh, their plan to, to either go to the moon or go to Mars is going to require that that second stage be refueled in orbit. And the way that they're planning to do it in the beginning is by launching a second Starship second stage as basically a tanker to fuel it, fuel up that that first one, and then send it on its way. If you had this economy that was producing propellant in in orbit, just like they said, that reduces the costs by by so many factors because you're not you're not spending all of that money and energy escaping Earth's gravity well. So, and then and then once you have that ability to to refuel in in orbit. Uh, you can go anywhere. You you can go to these asteroids. You can get those resources that are just sitting there. Uh, you could go to Mars. You can bring a large amount of of people and equipment and and everything else that you need to to do these things that we've always imagined we would we would one day do in space. So I think that's 
uh, again, you know, that is a great proposal. Whatever you think about ULA, that is a great proposal. And it's something that, uh, that they are building hardware for at, at whatever pace, but they're doing it. And other companies are building systems that would, would be able to be adapted to do these similar things. Uh, again, like Starship's second stage, they have a version of that that they're designing to land on the moon and to stay, to stay in that Earth-Moon orbit and never, never return to Earth, to just stay up there. So that, that would be one of many components that would be part of that, that permanent economy and that permanent orbital ecosystem. Looking at the map that they've drawn out, um, I, I, I looked at some of these presentations and uh, some of them were mentioning uh, that there's a potential, you know, there's a problem with the Van, Van Allen radiation belt uh, and that it's important to get things, some of the things outside of that uh, in order to operationalize them. This has actually been a problem for NASA uh, full stop. So, I mean, uh, what do you know anything about this, um, this issue at all? Yeah, so the, the Earth has a magnetic field that protects us from a lot of nasty things that we, we take for granted. And once you get beyond that, you are exposed to all of this radiation. You're exposed to, to all kinds of things, and you need shielding. So any permanent habitat that we build on, on the moon or on Mars, Mars has, has a, I'm not an expert on this, but I know that there, if it has a magnetic field, it is much, much weaker. And so the need to shield for radiation is, is essential or, or people will just die. And also these, these stations that we're going to be occupying in, in orbit will also need significant shielding. And when you think about shielding from radiation here on Earth, what are we talking? We're talking about things like lead or, or, or concrete, all kinds of things like this. Imagine trying to launch that into space. And, and now imagine if we're building this economy and we're able to extract resources beyond Earth's orbit. Imagine how much easier it will be to do that. And then the, the idea of creating shielding uh, is not that big of a problem. And then this, this problem that has dogged NASA and other space agencies uh, for decades now uh, no longer is such a serious problem. It's a, it's a problem that they will be able to deal with. Yeah, because it's a re it'll become a relay issue of getting to one point, one stepping stone, and then you're moving to the next and moving. But to, to get to those stepping stones, um, if you're able to, for, you know, either auto automatically or through robotics or uh, manufa automated manufacturing or anything like this, uh, being able to uh, produce things in space, uh, it's going to increase the time on that. Here's the final phase of the CIS Lunar 1000 project. We'll play this right now. So on the surface of the moon, we know that today we have silica and metallics as well as water in the form of ice that are available. If we're able to extract and use those materials from the moon, it makes it much lower cost than having to lift those same materials from Earth into space. 30 years from now, the CIS Lunar 1000 economy is self-sustainable with about 1,000 people living and working in space supporting a $2.7 trillion space economy. We have full, large-scale manufacturing capability established in Earth-Moon L1, using Zeus to transport raw materials harvested from the lunar surface, and ACES to transport materials from asteroid mining. ACES is transporting the finished parts to Earth orbits 
including parts for solar power satellites. Earth is supplied with unlimited, low-cost, carbon-free power from a constellation of solar power satellites in geosynchronous orbit. So our vision for the Cisalunar 1000 uh, 30 years from now is truly transformative. One of the key aspects of it is the availability of unlimited green energy from space. Uh, if energy is available for pennies per kilowatt hour, uh, then potentially it could lift everyone on Earth out of poverty, dramatically reduce conflict on Earth, and enable tremendous economic growth. So that's uh, United Launch Line. So the, the irony being the defense contractors behind this um, are saying this is a solution to uh, reducing conflict on Earth. I mean, we'll put that off to the side for a second. But uh, 30 years, Brian, 30 years. What do you think the prognosis of that is? Realistically, do you think that's possible? I, I think it is possible if, if things continue as they are going right now, uh, at the, the pace and the acceleration of technology right now, I think that that is possible, barring you know some catastrophic conflict or or something worse than you know this COVID nineteen crisis. You know, again, another topic to put aside for now, but uh, you know, it, it is very possible that that could happen. Of course, it's not going to be just United Launch Alliance; it'll be many, many companies. And it will not just be the United States, it will be many countries doing this. Uh, and, and if not, at least China, with, with Russia at least uh, having a, a small slice there, getting involved in all of this. Because all of these countries have these, these plans. You know, China plans to send people uh, to the moon and eventually to Mars. Like, this is something that they're planning to do. They have, they have a, a manned space program. It's not as fast paced as, as the US or Russia, but they have one, they have that capability that they can, they can build on. They, they have been getting this experience. So this is all something that's possible and it, it, it could happen a little faster or by 30 years, it could be a, a, a bit bigger than envisioned here in, in this uh, diagram here. Uh, the, the idea of you know, solar power gathering it beyond the atmosphere you know, that's one of the big drawbacks of solar power right now here on Earth is that you, you have the atmosphere between you and the sun. And if it's cloudy, you're not getting solar power. So uh, if you had a, a station in space collecting that energy and somehow being able to beam it down uh, and, and it was, you know, it wasn't affected by weather or it would beam it down in an area that had clear weather and then you could distribute it onward from there, uh, you know, that could that could significantly help augment uh, the, the power situation here on Earth. And of course, electricity does drive everything in the modern economy. And the cheaper that electricity is, the cheaper everything else is. So uh, yeah, it's weird that it's ULA, uh, a defense, con you know, this defense contractor. But again, we have to remember that the engineers at these companies are, are brilliant. They might not necessarily think uh, about what their company is doing as a whole around the world. I, I think most people try to compartmentalize that. Uh, but uh, w regardless, the, the concept itself, I think it stands on its own. Uh, it, it, it might not be 
you know, we, we'll see other people take this up and, and do it for sure. Here's uh, the Japanese uh, space agency, one of the recent uh, Hayabasu missions, uh, landing on an asteroid uh, and taking samples uh, back to Earth. And so this is an absolutely incredible. I know the United States has also uh, done similar missions as well. Uh, but you know, the Japanese space agency is really, really advanced, um, especially on the, the scientific front uh, as well, but also just the capability of, of, of the Japanese uh, in terms of being able to execute a mission like this successfully, if I'm not mistaken, on the first attempt. Um, you know, just t tell us about Japan uh, and what sort of role and contribution they're making. Uh, in the in the new space race, so I I think that this is one of the one of the most important missions actually, uh, if we're thinking about that that future economy in space because Japan has done this twice now where they've landed on an asteroid, collected material, and returned it to Earth. There are scientists right now who are studying the the physical characteristics of these asteroids. Uh, why is that important? Because if we, we plan on building stuff out of these asteroids, out of the resources available there, we need to have some kind of starting point. And, and thanks to uh, Japan's space agency, we now have that, that knowledge. We can start building on that. Uh, we talked a little bit at the end of the, the radio show about 3D printing in space and, and using the material there. Uh, we've seen here on Earth gigantic 3D printers using concrete to, to print out buildings, basically. Um, and, and we know that there's metal 3D printers. Uh, so, so having our hands on that material from those asteroids will allow material scientists here on Earth to figure out how to do something like that, to, to get a 3D printer, to get automated manufacturing technology, uh, processing that material into something useful. Uh, Japan also, uh, in the past, has launched resupply missions to the space station. And so they do have a very capable space, uh, they have a very capable space agency. Uh, it really is focused on scientific, scientific progress. And, and I think that's great because, um, you know, it kind of fills in the gaps that other space agencies might not, might not be so focused on. You know, like NASA has done one mission, the OSIRIS-REx, and it still hasn't returned from Earth yet. It touched down on the asteroid and it's coming back, but J Japan has already done this twice. So it shows you how they are contributing and they're, they're contributing into areas that other space agencies might, might not be focusing on. So it's really important. Um, I also I saw footage of 3D printing, so I guess uh, we could talk about that a little more too. There was actually a 3D printer that was sent up to the International Space Station, and they were testing that out on on the space station in microgravity. So you know we take for granted uh, gravity here on Earth uh, that it's holding everything down, and all of these processes that we do here on Earth depend on gravity. We, we don't even think about it. Uh, so again, it seems like a very small step sending a 3D printer to the space station and printing things out on, on the space station out of plastic. Uh, but 
that's a very important first step. That, that knowledge that we can get from that is what we will build on to create space-based 3D printing to, to do more useful things, to build components. Uh, what's, what's interesting about 3D printing that, that people might not think about is that uh, here on Earth, if you have a 3D file of an object and you make it, you know, if I design it here in Thailand and I put that design on the internet, I can physically print that out on my printers that I have. And then I can send it around the world at light speed to the United States and someone can print that same object out on their printer. And if you have a 3D printer in space and there's a problem, you need a new component, NASA can design it on, on the ground. And then they can send that, that digital file to the people who need it and they can fabricate it in space. So I, it's just one of those things like uh, in Star Trek, they had the replicator. It, it's kind of like, it's kind of like that where you, you have these files, you know, you cannot, you cannot carry all the spare parts that you might necessarily need, especially when we start doing colonization. You might, you can't really have a warehouse full of these parts, but you can have a hard drive full of the designs and then you can print them out on demand. And uh, people who are familiar with 3D printing might be familiar with, with plastic, but there is metal 3D printers, and as a matter of fact, very, very expensive and advanced 3D printers that, that print out of metal are actually used to print usable rocket engines. I, I believe there's, a, a, there's this company, Rocket Lab, and they launched their rockets out of New Zealand, and their, their engine, their rocket engine, is partially printed, 3D printed out of metal. So, and, and they fly that and it works. So, I mean, this is just a glimpse into the future of what's going to be possible. There, there's a Silicon Valley firm called Made in Space, I think, and they're one of the, the pioneers in, in 3D printing. And uh, there's also that they had to overcome some issues with, you know, will a 3D printer work in zero gravity or they're calling it microgravity. Uh, and they seem to have um, overcome some of these these issues and sent uh, 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 printers up to this International Space Station and have manufactured the first items ever uh, in space. And so they're, I think those kind of companies, that was a startup that was really uh, a group of young people that got together. Um, they had worked for different agencies before. Some worked at NASA. Others were engineers. Um, but this, this is going to be huge. I mean, uh, being able to uh, you know, for, work on ceramic material, metal alloy material, a crystalline or crystal crystal material as well um, to to extract that from an asteroid or from the moon, uh, and then to um, you could immediately go to produce parts, uh, all sorts of things. So, yeah, I think three D printing is probably going to be one of the most important utilities. Uh, it that's going to draw that could drive or a really important bolt to put in the uh, <laughs> the mechanism to drive the cis lunar economy. Um, and I know you've got a really uh, a good background in engineering and industrial design and also in 3D printing as well. Just from your personal experience, what how practical? What are some of the issues that that they might face? Uh, you know, going forward on this. I think there's still a lot to be done uh, with 3D printing when we're talking about large structures. And I think that is actually the area will, where it'll be extremely 
revolutionary. Of course, make, making tools and spare parts in space will be revolutionary as well, but uh, I forget what the company is, and I don't think that they're in business anymore, but they, they had this idea where they would have this, basically it's a factory, an automated factory where it attaches to the asteroid, and in one side, the, the materials from the asteroid enter and are processed, and out of the other side, the components to one of those space stations that you know Jeff Bezos was talking about and that NASA used to, to do conceptual designs of back, I think, in the 70s. Uh, when you look at those structures, how enormous they are, we're, we're not going to have people you know, welding and doing all that stuff in space. That would be very impractical if you had a way to automate that, where you had uh, basically a factory processing that material and automatically sending trusses and, and habit, habitation modules out the other side, uh, that, that would that would be what would enable us to, to build those mega structures in space that th those would be cities. Those would be cities in space that people could, could live on permanently. We, we see companies on earth working on these things. They're working on things, maybe not, you know, with the intention of sending it into space, but you can see the implications of, of companies on earth building houses out of, out of material from the location they're building the house that has obvious implications for, for building structures on the moon, on Mars, or using an asteroid and, and creating a structure in, in orbit. So uh, it, it's, it's a, overcoming, overcoming the, the, the main thing to overcome is going to be figuring out how, how to do this on, on that massive scale, uh, to doing it here on Earth and then figuring out how to do that in space. And, and again, Made in Space is a company that exists right now that is already trying to figure this out. So this isn't theoretical. This is something already being done. Even, even if it seems like a very small first couple of steps, but the implications are enormous. Yeah, because it, it could be a situation like if you wanted to uh, deploy uh, a telescope or, or what they call a star shield. Um, so, you know, if, if, if you position a shield in, in, over the view of a star and all you can see is the corona of the star, uh, you're then able to see what planets might be orbiting that star. And the shield is like a fan that spreads out. Uh, and so a lot of these things are really problematic uh, from an engineering and practicality and cost point of view. But if you're able to make sections of it in space and maybe you know some other essential components that you can't make in space, of course, you would, you would launch those, uh, then there would be kind of a tag team uh, sort of operation there with some of the work being done space, some of it coming from Earth, uh, also being able to recycle materials and parts from other space stations and other operations that might be decommissioned, or there's a lot of modular design as well uh, to, to at least this, the deep space gateway that Cislunar is talking about um, is, is a modular system that's going to be kind of an erector set being plugged in one one item being plugged so kind of like the international space station but a lot more well designed i think less ad hoc than the i the, the iss so you know there is definitely a potential there for getting more done i think uh the more the more activity you have up there the more is going to be possible and and like you said the 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 speed the trajectory of it it's going to be a lot more rapid but um yeah we're looking at this is made in space here 
And this is yeah, micro zero gravity printing aboard the International Space Station. So, you know, pretty historic, but yeah, being done from an office in uh, Palo Alto or Sunnyvale, I'm not sure where they're based, but um, pretty, pretty incredible. But really the cost, it's not a great cost. It's really about engineering. It's about, it's about the know-how um, and, and then actually deploying it is, is very cost effective. Um, uh, the technology is getting better and better, cheaper, cheaper and cheaper. So you talked about some of these big structures that Jeff Bezos was talking about with uh, the colony on Mars. Let's take a look at the the history of some of these, and we'll we'll round out our uh, our, our conversation here with that. But uh, so go, this has been a, a kind of going back all the way to uh, probably 1970s. Uh, is when we started seeing uh, some of these. And uh, so I think one of the uh, main ones was, I think NASA had its, uh, its colony in space and uh, it was doing a lot of conceptual artwork. This was uh, a lot of people showing these sort of things. Here's one here. This is the uh, NASA's space colony concept, 1975. And uh, Bessos, I think, had something, if not this very same artwork in his presentation here and this was the sort of thing that they were showing us in school in the 70s saying you'll be living here in in the year 2000 we were really excited of course about that prospect (laughs) so so this is the Taurus that you were talking about here this is an internal view here and uh obviously some great artists uh we'll show you how to get hold of some of this artwork um, uh, afterwards here and then moving on this is an external view of that Taurus there so these are massive structures Jeff Bezos believes that this is very possible this is doable here and this sort of made its ways clearly this was the inspiration to uh, here's a, another external uh, viewpoint here uh, of the of the, how the design looks uh, so agrarian wheels growing food people living, uh, moving with centrifugal force in order to create some kind of a gravity f- field. That's an engineering task uh, in itself that would have to be um, solved somehow to make something like this uh, this actually work. That's a big challenge. And so this is what we saw in the uh, here. This is a 19, or sorry, the 2013 uh, Hollywood blockbuster film, Elysium. And th- so this was definitely the inspiration for this film here. And here's a shot of it here. And what, what's interesting to me is the sim- symbolism of this that you could see on Earth. You could see Elysium, obviously, is Elysium being the, the Roman uh, heaven, if you were, the afterlife, the, the paradise uh, in, in the afterworld uh, in, in terms of Roman mythology, Roman uh, pagan religion that you would uh, ascend to the Elysium. And, and so the, the symbolism in this film was that this would be something for the ultra wealthy. Uh, and you have zero gravity, advanced medical care, technologies available, clean everything, green everything up there uh, in the orbit. And then there was this kind of squalor, this massive poverty and everything down on earth. This is where Matt Damon, uh, the star of that film was, uh, trying to get a, a poor girl, I believe, who had needed life-saving medical uh, procedure that was only available on Elysium. Uh, so, a t- but a two-tier society 
So even in the depiction of this film, you already have the politics creeping in, um, in terms of class politics and uh, very much reflecting the politics um, that, you know, govern us today on earth. But um, just, you know, what are your, your thoughts on, on this? Uh, again, uh, uh, I don't know how far in the future, what would be your best guess scenario if things were to progress uh, at the rate that maybe Jeff Bezos is hoping they uh, progress at? And then what would be the implications of this if this really was, do you, do you think there's a two-tiered, a threat of a two-tiered uh, society uh, with these sort of advances I'm talking in the future, but go ahead. So that's a, that's a lot of really good points there. Uh, for, from a technical aspect that people aren't, 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 aren't familiar uh, with, with why this concept is being looked at. When, when people talk about going to the moon or going to Mars, these are two places that have less gravity than Earth. And when your body is in a, a environment with less gravity, your body begins to deteriorate. When astronauts are on the International Space Station for, for six months or a year, uh, when they come back to Earth, it takes a long time for their body to adjust to gravity. And when they're in space, there's all kinds of changes to their physiology, negative changes. So if you wanted to build a city on the moon or on Mars, this is not a place I don't think that you would want to live permanently because you would always have that problem with gravity. With these uh, artificial habitats that would be built, um, the centripetal force, if people have ever had like um, a bottle of water and they've swung it around, they'll notice that the water kind of sticks to the bottom, even when it's upside down. And that's because the centripetal force is kind of acting like, like gravity, holding it down uh, no matter what its orientation is. And that's exactly what these torus uh, structures would do. They would spin. Uh, they would have to be big so that the spinning would not be disorienting. And that's what would hold you and everything else down to the ground. And you would be able to spin it so that you would have one times Earth gravity so that you would feel comfortable and you would have none of those effects on your physiology. So that's, that's why this is an important idea now, talking about the, the class divide, I thought that uh, Elysium was a very cautionary tale. Uh, it is very possible that you could have a two-tier society like this. And even if we don't go into space, this is still very possible. If technology is centralized and, and these breakthroughs are, are, are not distributed equally, uh, people who are into the open source movement uh, op uh, people are familiar with open source. This would be software that's for free that anyone can download. You have a large group of people contributing to it, constantly developing it. Uh, there's foundations that are built up to, to move some of these projects forward. Some of them are very formidable. Uh, uh, for 3D designers, Blender is a good example of this. It's a, it's a very powerful tool, even though it's free and open source. Uh, the foundation is very well run and, and development is, is very good. So if you have a future where open source is, is even a, 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 a moderate factor in the, in the economy, then we might not see a two-tiered system like that. Uh, but we see how industries like the pharmaceutical industry, because in that movie, uh, the, the medical care was a big issue. Uh, and, and aerospace and manufacturing technology this is monopolized, centralized, and patented, and uh, intellectual property uh, walls built around it. 
and people don't have access to this. And, and this is the threat of universal basic income too. Uh, giving a government the power to basically hand these giant corporations that have canceled out every job with automation and just handing people money to live, uh, that would guarantee a two-tiered system like in Elysium because people would not have the means of manufacturing themselves. Now, now, like right in my room right now, I have 3D printers. I have the ability to manufacture things on my tabletop. The, the means of manufacturing are literally sitting on my tabletop and, and on a shelf over there. Uh, if things go in that direction, if people start to think about solutions less politically and more pragmatically, and they start thinking about, hey, you know, I don't like these big companies, so, so why are we allowing them to monopolize this? Why aren't we doing things more locally? And Local, localization doesn't have to be like uh, homesteading in, in the mountains with, you know, like a long beard or something. It could be cutting edge technology uh, that you're, you know, decentralizing and localizing, like, like 3D printing. And uh, there was a movement, the DIY bio movement, that was the, the greatest hope of decentralizing the pharmaceutical industry. Unfortunately, I have not seen a lot of progress with that. But you know, if we could get people thinking in that direction, and I guess that's kind of the role of the alternative media is to to raise awareness that this technology has huge implications and a scenario like Elysium is possible. And if we remember in that movie, they had uh, like an army of robots uh, protecting this system, this monopoly, and there was nothing you could do about it because their robots are faster than you, they're smarter than you, they're stronger than you, and they're being controlled off world. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, everyone on earth is in squalor. What are they going to do to get access to that, to do anything about that? It, it gets to a point where the people who, who dominate the technology and the people who are subjugated by it, it becomes such large disparity that it's like a farmer and his, his sheep. And the sheep are not, not ever going to rebel. And the people in Elysium, even though at the end of the movie they did, but but I think realistically they would never be able to rebel. So mm. uh, it's like, I think it's a really serious cautionary tale, Elysium, uh, and and it, and it, and that's how we can kind of see these 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 billionaires that want to control everything, and then literally being off the planet, and they they couldn't care less that the, the space of the Earth was scorched, and that everyone was was practically living in dirt. If you if you think about stem cell technology that's coming on now really, really rapidly uh, and how that's been monetized by uh, a few big players and where, where that's, that, you know, that treatment is unattainable for people that can't afford it, but the amount of people that need it, um, it's off the charts. So um, th this these issues are, are already happening uh, on Earth. And uh, as the advances uh, really accelerate because of space, uh, the space economy, um, you know, we, who knows, who knows what will be attainable for certain people um, and unattainable for others. This, we, we're already facing this issue down here on the uh, on the planet on terra firma. So that's that's just going to increase, as you say, that that issue. So we're going to have to we're going to have to find some answers for that. Uh, certainly, I like the open source uh, uh, concept as well. Gosh, if we had that for pharmaceuticals, uh, we probably wouldn't be in the current pandemic crisis we're in right now uh, because the focus wouldn't be on lockdowns and vaccines. They would be on therapeutics that are 
available, cheap, and uh, and uh, licensed. You know, they're not licensed, so they're open source, effectively, uh, very cheap and effective pharmaceutical companies. But the power of cartels, the power of cartels, is uh, keeping keeping that from happening. But uh, just you know, look looking at this is from the 1970s. Here, I mean, these were all considered science fiction, Brian. Um, and, and they are kind of far out, but we are, we are back into this realm now that there was a, a break from for 30 or 40 years where people were vi- and real visionaries coming to the fore and saying, how, how are we going to get from A to B? Um, that was kind of a, a lost mission. It was a given up, really, for a few years. You talked about on our, our previous segment on the, on the radio show on Sunday Wire how you, when you grew up, the space uh, race was, and, and this was stagnant. No, there wasn't much happening. There were winding down programs. Space shuttles getting canceled. Uh, are, are we back into an expansive phase now like we were uh, post-Apollo? I, I, th- I think it, it's, it clearly is already, and it's just a matter of how, how long will it go. Is this, is this finally when we do become a multi-planetary species and we do move out beyond the Earth for real, and, and not not just these tentative uh, experimental first steps, but but for real, and uh, not just for exploration, but for economic development. Um, we we saw the we saw the dystopian uh, vision of Elysium, and I think Blade Runner is another very instructive uh, story warning about a two tiered system and and the the privileged being off world. And everybody else being stuck on on the Earth, ruined Earth. Uh, but there are also utopian versions of the future where we have that abundance of resources. And when you have an abundance of resources, you don't see people killing each other over it. Like when's the last time you saw people fighting over a leg of chicken? Because we have the the technology to farm chickens uh, to such an extent that there's so much of it available for an affordable price, pretty much anybody who wants can get some. And right now we have the, you know, minerals, ores, electricity, all of these things are, are scarce on earth. We have a finite earth. We have a population that's growing. Uh, what do you do? Do we, do we cave into a dystopian future where we tell people you're not having kids and you're not, you're gonna, you're gonna eat bugs. You're not having a steak or can we expand? You know, the population is expanding. Can we expand the realm that population exists in? Uh, and and uh, you mentioned Star Trek when you were talking about the, the space shuttle enterprise. And that, that actually is, uh, you know, I don't know how much analysis people have given to Star Trek, but because of the replicator, uh, basically like uh, futuristic 3D printing and the abundance of resources because of the expanse into space, uh, there was no, there was no, scarcity and so when they were talking about when they were talking about there was no money in in especially the 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 later versions of star trek there was no money it wasn't because they were like communist or anything it was because technology overcame scarcity it wasn't a political or economic system it was technology that did that we could already see that uh, even in our lifetimes, we can see how how scarcity has been reduced by technology. Uh, the phones that we carry in our pocket, uh, just think about what that is. It's a studio, an office, a telecommunication device, a library. 
um, so, so many things in one. And think about like when, when I was a kid growing up, I would see that in Star Trek and I'd think, well, that's nice and I'll never live to see it probably. It'd be like a hundred years. And uh, I, I'm, I'm using one right now to do this video call. Video call is another thing that we, we, we only imagined when we were growing up. So that's, that's the, the, those are the two paths that we can go here regarding space. We, the, the, the possibility of a dystopian future is there, but also the, the promise of abundance and uh, technology overcoming scarcity. And like that ULA proposal said, you know, it, it really will reduce conflict if it happens, if it happens the right way. And so that's why I think it's important that we're having this conversation today and that we're talking about this more often and, and not in a speculative way, but the way it's actually unfolding. Uh, we need to start having this conversation. We need, to, we, we need people to start thinking about these practical things that impact our life and how we need to be in control of it and discuss it and, and participate in it. Because if not, it will be more Elysium and less Star Trek and how, how, how bad it gets. I mean, just think about the control they exercise over us here on Earth. And then imagine if the, the barrier you had to overcome was figuring out how to get into orbit. Uh, do you know how to build a rocket? I don't. Uh, so that would be like the ultimate wall that they could build to keep, to keep the masses away from them and, and for them to be separated and above, literally above us. So it's, it's uh, in that dimension, the space, the space race is not just between nations, but I guess it's also between ordinary people that are going to be impacted by it and the people who are leading it to, to make sure that this unfolds in a way that is beneficial to us and not just for a few. Oh, the potential for separation uh, between uh, the elite uh, billionaire class uh, and everybody else with 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 the space uh, colonies or space, you know, or a low Earth or orbit residency or something like that. Uh, it's it's huge because, like you said, it's it's really down to access. They're talking about space tourism as well in the ULA um, presentation, and that's not going to be uh, something for <laughs> for anybody uh, to enjoy. I'm sure um, your only option, if you're a working class, to ever experience that would be if you are in the military and you manage to get into space force or you go via the NASA route, but certainly you're not going to be able to purchase a ticket. Then you're into the lottery situation like the fifth element or like the, the film, the Island, uh, as well, uh, a dystopian picture of the future. Um, but, uh, but, you know, looking back at the, uh, just, just so people know, if you want to find, uh, some of this art, uh, this conceptual art, uh, you go to this, here's a great Twitter account here, 70 sci-fi art. And, uh, this person who runs it, Adam, uh, chronicles, uh, amazing collection also on Pinterest as well. You, uh, you, you mentioned that as well, Brian. Um, I, I think this is, I mean, this is where a lot of the inspiration, it started on a paper. It started by putting a pen or a paintbrush to canvas, uh, you know Macquarie's work, uh, the start, the conceptual Star Wars early art that was used as the basis for the storyboarding and the character development and everything um, that started in in somebody's imagination 
so did Star Trek. And so much of that ended up has ended up becoming real. Um, a lot of good science fiction uh, becomes science reality uh, eventually. Um, so, I mean, I think it's really, I learned a lot looking back at some of this conceptual art and some of it seems really far out, but then you have to stop and think, pause for a second and say, actually, it's not that far out. It might be far out today, but you know, having that vision, that imagination, that, um, you know, how you how you see the future or how you see humans in the future or humans in space um this is actually really important and i think uh we we've we, we very much manifest i think humans are going to manifest their future based on these these visions that they have and how they see themselves um so we can learn a lot by looking back at some of this conceptual art which is is aesthetically beautiful it is really stunning uh, on the fictional side, the novels, a lot of the science fiction novels of the 60s and 70s, the Philip K. Dicks, not just Philip K. Dick, but there's a whole genre of space fiction that a lot of people don't know about uh, that were paperback books, uh, but they're everywhere during this time. So this really sparked the imagination of people during these decades, um, so much so. A lot of these people were inspired, and this inspired people to go work for NASA, for ULA, for SpaceX, for uh, Blue Origin. Uh, a lot that started with science fiction and with the imagination side of it as well. Um, but uh, your your thoughts on this uh, as well? Were you is this is this one of the things that got you into this subject and into the the, the sort of what futuristic engineering that, you, that you're doing really with 3D printing. Uh, absolutely. When I was a kid, I absorbed all of this and I was big into science fiction. Uh, so I always, I always figured that when I, when I got older, I would eventually get into something like this. And it was just, you know, it was just by chance uh, when I was here in Thailand and uh, the way, the way people do things here is very practical um, the philosophy that that many Thai people follow is a very practical one, and so I, I stopped chasing like these these dead end uh, entrepreneurial ideas, and I just decided, you know, to to get into product design and three D design. And then as three three D printers uh, were were kind of being talked about, but not really practical at, at the time, I realized how important that would be in the future, and that that's why I really started to study three D design. And uh, by the time I was good at it, the affordable 3D printers were, were here. And uh, you, you could actually make a living making prototypes and, and printing it out on your tabletop. It's, it's crazy. And, and you know, what's, what's weird is like you'll be watching a SpaceX countdown, watching this rocket get ready to take off and then land, like, like in Buck Rogers or something. And then... You're, you, while you're designing something and watching it print on the tabletop, it really is. Sometimes it's surreal. You have to remind yourself that that, that this is really happening. It's not. It's not science fiction. Uh, what you said about the art is so important. A lot of these people who get involved in in the, in the space programs, making these things happen, were inspired by this art and these stories, and uh, uh, recommending viewers to go check this artwork out is important. If if you're not a technical person and you don't want to get involved in aerospace, but at least uh, let it let it inspire your imagination and your thought process about um, what the future might look like. And some of the things that we really need to start thinking about now, it's not speculative science fiction anymore. 
it's happening. Hardware to do these things is being built right now. Uh, and, and we need to figure out what, which future do we want? Do we, do we want Elysium? Do we want Star Trek? Do we want Blade Runner? Uh, we need to really start thinking about that. And uh, probably a, another conversation for another time is AI. Uh, mm. But AI also plays a serious role in this because they're starting to use AI for designing. And they're starting to figure out things that, that human engineers wouldn't be able to figure out necessarily or, or not quickly. And so that is going to play a role in accelerating technology. So again, like when I was a kid, the, the idea of having like that, that little data pad that they were using in Star Trek, the idea of having that seemed crazy, but now we take it for granted. And it could be in our lifetime that we take for granted that we've got these cities floating around in space and that we can, we can go there. Or, or the, I, uh, one of the things Jeff Bezos said, and that many people have, have always talked about in science fiction was, you know, having an entire station that's like a nature preserve. You know, you don't have to worry about poachers getting in there and, and you don't have to worry about a catastrophe on Earth because we would have these preserves spread out. You know, it's kind of like a, a hedge against catastrophe, um, which is another which is another aspect. And that's something Elon Musk also talks about is, is getting people off of Earth to kind of hedge our bet against, you know, a catastrophe here on Earth, uh, an asteroid or, or some man-made catastrophe uh, uh, people might remember the Fukushima disaster, which is actually still an ongoing disaster. P people don't talk about it, but it's still uh, melting down there and they haven't been able to, to stop it. Uh, things like that here on Earth, it, it, it's still a serious problem. We only have one Earth, but it would probably be a smart idea to have an insurance policy. So the, the further we spread out in space, uh, the, the better that policy will be. And then uh, lastly uh, is probably the more immediate issue, uh, which is one of your areas of uh, competence is geopolitics and uh, military affairs. And uh, a lot of people will know about, you know, the Starlink project. Uh, there's a privatized aspect to uh, the, the satellites and the Internet networks that we have that are also... Uh, used for cloud computing, will be used for military uh, guidance, GPS. Uh, you, you talked about the, the F-35 uh, fleet as well. All these future-proof, they call them, the military call them future-proof military uh, uh, technologies, weapons, uh, flight systems, and so forth. Um, that, that, that's also an aspect of it. And uh, so the array of, of, of Starlink satellites, that really also reflects uh, some of that uh, as well, uh, and we we'll look at the, uh, the 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 beast. There he is, uh, the F thirty five. So you know, you you warned about in your in your article uh, about the potential when you have great competition in the great power competitions of of geopolitics and defending one's assets, defending one's infrastructure that allows it to maintain the dominant edge. In this case the space infrastructure would enable someone like the U.S. or the European Union or China or whoever the main player is to protect their advantage on Earth. Uh, and then it, th then it becomes a, a much bigger high-stakes stakes game. And so what is above is very much related to what is below. 
Uh, but you know, your your final thoughts on this really crucial part of this conversation with space. Yes. So we we already see this playing out uh, in the article. I talk about uh, Russia most likely being the ones jamming the U.S. GPS system in the Middle East. Now, what is the U.S. doing in the Middle East? They're they're illegally occupying. Uh, they're carrying out campaigns of aggression against the people there. Russia came to the aid of Syria to, to protect the country from a fate the U.S. imposed on Libya, basically the country's destruction. And they're jamming the GPS, the satellite navigation system the U.S. uses for, for civilian and military applications. And so this kind of partially blinded U.S. forces in the region. And so when they established the U.S. Space Force, this was one of the things they were tasked with doing, figuring out how to stop these satellites from being jammed, uh, what to do when, when an adversary jams the satellites. And so when they start looking for solutions to figure this out, even though U.S. Space Force is sold to the public as defending America in the realm of space, what they're actually doing is preventing other countries from defending themselves against the U.S., its military aggression, and its space-borne capabilities used to carry that aggression out. Uh, I talked about anti-satellite missiles, I, again, and you talked about how that could, that could dangerously escalate where one country shoots down a satellite, and so the other country shoots down their satellites, and then before you know it, everybody is blind in space. And again, just think about even in our own daily lives, how much we might depend on satellite navigation or satellite communication or imagery or you know weather, everything, uh, and, and a lot of aspects about IT that, that out of sight, out of mind. And because it's up in space, it really is out of sight. Uh, so this is already a, 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 a defense a situation where, where all of this is happening already. And then we can just imagine how much uh, more complicated this will get as there's more at stake up in space, as more people are in space. If people are fighting here on Earth, why wouldn't they be fighting in orbit or on the moon or on Mars, where, wherever there's resources and competition, there's going to be conflict. Uh, so we have to think about how that's all going to play out and the, the sort of weapon systems that would be used. And, and, and like you said, a country defending its its position on Earth from space, or that kind of goes to the that whole Elysium uh, comparison, wh where they were on a space station that nobody could touch, nobody could reach it, and they were building these this army of robots that that people couldn't stop, couldn't do anything about. Uh, and that was that's the ultimate realization of of protecting your position on Earth from space or your position in space. And so we could already see aspects of that. I mean, a country that is attacked by the U.S. that has, has no, no air defense and no ability to jam or, or affect anything in, in Earth orbit, uh, there's uh, they're a sitting duck. They have no way to, to protect themselves. Uh, I guess what's promising is that so many countries are developing these capabilities and that there is a balance of power developing. And, and we see the U.S. struggling to, to maintain its primacy in, in all of these domains, not just in space. So I, I guess uh, universal peace is probably unobtainable, but 
uh, a balance of power and a credible deterrence for countries to just leave each other alone and, and try to think about cooperating rather than uh, waging conflict because the, the benefits of cooperation are, are better than the, the benefits coming out of conflict. I think the U.S. is learning that lesson the very hard way right now. And uh, we just need to make sure that that balance of power continues. Yeah, I mean, just the I'll, I'll throw in one small detail, which we alluded to at the beginning of the conversation, the small the small detail of providing independent satellite-delivered internet access, high-speed broadband. If you take a conflict like Syria, where you know it, it, the internet's down, the telecoms are down in the country, there's a war, go- a proxy war in the case of Syria, and the quote rebels being backed by the NATO allies, by the U.S., by Turkey by Israel, everybody who is supporting the rebels and the various terrorist factions, satellite phones played a massive role in allowing uh, non-state actors uh, to or proxy actors in order to carry out military operations and to coordinate. So the U.S. had the eyes in the skies with the satellites. The rebels that they were backing had the sat phones. Regular Syrians had subpar, Syrian military subpar comms that were not reliable, substations being blown up, uh, no internet access, no telecoms in some places, no 3G even. And uh, so being able to shut down in, in the future, the U.S., if they controlled that array, could shut down the internet or shut down power in a certain country and then beam access to their whoever their uh, militant factions are or whoever their allies are on the ground. I mean, a massive advantage, massive advantage that you have no control over down on earth. A simple thing like being able to target internet access like that from from a satellite. Think about that globally. Then you're into kind of Marvel Comics sort of plot there with total full spectrum dominance, command and control on a level that it doesn't exist right now, but we're very close to. Um, So, I mean... That's one thing that that got in my head when I thought about the the, the it, it depends who controls, you know, who has operational control of of this sort these sort of technologies. That it would mean the end of. I mean, you'd have a really hard time defending your sovereign independence like that when you really you can't even control within your own borders. You're you're really at the mercy of whoever's <laughs> you know there so um uh, that that these are very real issues um and it's very easy to operationalize a lot of these uh these sort of issues technologically and militarily um so i'm sure that some countries are thinking about that i'm sure iran is thinking about these sort of things other countries that have been at the brunt of the western uh machine uh with regards to war uh so russia's Probably Russia's probably already gamed out these things a long time ago. They're building their own internet. They're building more self-sufficient systems. They're not relying on the global nodes uh, and gateways as much. Um, but not all the countries like, you know, this country like Syria, they don't have the resources that Russia has. Um, there's other small states like that. Iraq, they're cannon fodder, basically. 
Um, so th those differences are going to accentuate even more uh, with these sort of technological um, developments. But um, that's, you know, that's where we're at in terms of the, uh, the space race here. So, but um, yeah, your final thoughts. Uh, this, this is the article here uh, up on 21stCenturyWire.com. It's actually called The Coming Space Race. Uh, it's down in the science and technology section. It's written by Brian Berletic, who's been our guest uh, for this uh, special live stream. I say special because we've gone way over time what we normally do. But I mean, this is a really vast area, Brian. I mean, we could spend an hour just talking about the uh, each phase of the of the of the cislunar space economy or uh, the, the Mars uh, potential for Mars and or the satellite arrays of Starlink and what Jeff Bezos is proposing. I mean, there's a whole, there's, there's a vast area. So we, we've given a good, I think, general uh, introduction on a bunch of these segments and brought up what we think are important issues that we think are, you know, worth looking at and discussing. There's, there's some good jump off points here for more conversations, but um, I'll just give you your, I'll give you the floor for your final thoughts on this issue. And uh, also, where where your interest is going forward um what areas that you're interested in okay so uh what one one thing about uh the the satellites and and this is something that's happening right now uh, countries are starting to think about this they're, they're looking at starlink and other constellations like that and they're already making deals with spacex and and other providers uh, conditions that if they are going to do this, that they need to do it through ground stations. Uh, and, and Russia was, was talking about this and saying, you're only going to do this through our ground stations. And uh, countries need to start thinking about this. In some cases, countries don't have the resources to defend themselves against this. In other cases, they have the resources, but they just don't have the foresight or, 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 or the, the, you know, thinking about it as a threat. They underestimate it until it's too late. And I think we saw a lot of that during the Arab Spring with social media. I think we still see a lot of countries underestimating the threat of, of information warfare and now it being augmented in, in outer space. Um, closing thoughts, I would say that uh, what used to be science fiction is starting to unfold right in front of us. And if you doubt that, just go and look at some of the stuff SpaceX is doing look at what some of these Chinese companies are doing with reusability. Uh, there's rockets launching out of New Zealand and Iran now. So uh, this is something that is accelerating and it's expanding and it's widening. It's not just two countries doing more of the same thing. It's many countries doing a wide variety of things and people are actually thinking about how to, to do these economies in space. And we need to yeah, uh, you know, very seriously, we need to think about what kind of future we want to live in, both here on Earth and in space. The, the, the disparity between those who control technology and those that are at the mercy of it, we need to get serious about getting that technology into the hands of people to decentralize it as much as possible uh, and, and to start thinking about solutions where we're solving it ourselves. We're coming up with our own solutions instead of demanding things because you could demand something of somebody who's who dominates you, but what what incentive do they have to listen? And uh, finally, uh, for me, looking forward, uh, just like I do in in for biotech and manufacturing here on Earth, 
I'm looking at space as a, a, another realm where this this battle is unfolding, this battle between people seeking to do dominate it and centralize it and concentrate it into the hands of, of the few and looking at ways to help distribute this and decentralize it and, and make it, you know, open source and accessible to as many people as possible. And I, and I don't mean through socialism or communism. I mean through people getting involved and participating directly. I, like I said, I, I don't have the means of manufacturing in my hands through communism. I have it because I, I bought a 3D printer and I could literally make things on my tabletop. And there's so many things in, in terms of technology where it's possible to do for ourselves what you used to need a, a studio with employees to do. You can do that yourself. Uh, where you would need a printing press to reach a million people, where you could do it online with the internet. And space technology is going to be no different. It's going, it's going to be this, this, uh, this, these advancements and expanding into this realm that we could either participate in or we could watch it be done above us. And then we could be subjected to the consequences of allowing a few people to, to dominate it and monopolize it. And just think about how hard it is right now to reach these monopolies here on Earth. And then just imagine those monopolies up above you in space where where nothing you can do can reach them so I, I just think it would leave it on that uh there's a promising future there's also a, a possible terrifying future and it's really up to us which one unfolds no that's a, a great point to leave on uh and certain a lot of food for thought a lot of food for thought in this area i'm i'm a big 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 fan of the open source movement it's been revolutionary um, it will continue to be revolutionary. It depends on, you know, how much uh, support it gets, really, by users, like you said. It's about people actually taking advantage of it because it is out there. It's a really important point that uh, you've made there, uh, Brian. So but we really appreciate your participating in this discussion. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, we we'll hopefully will revisit some of these some of these issues and some of these points and stories uh, going forward. There's going to be a lot of interesting advancements to look at after we see what the Mars mission comes back with. And that sort of side of things is going to be really fascinating as well. So we look forward to picking up the uh, baton on this with you later. And then also your other work uh, at Land Destroyer. Uh, we'll have a link to the show page. We'll uh, link to Land Destroyer. That's also got links to your YouTube channel as well. You're talking about a lot of these issues regularly on your uh, your other channels as well. And you can also find a way that you can also support uh, Brian's work there, which is a pretty broad spectrum of, of stuff, not just geopolitics, which you're very well known for, uh, but also on the technological development side, on the open source side, on the 3D printing revolution as well. You're doing great work. Uh, on that side of things as well. So it's great to uh, great to to spend time with you on this today. And and as always, uh, thank you for having me. I, I always appreciate the opportunity to have these discussions. Thank you. No, it's it's absolutely our pleasure. That's uh, Brian Berletic, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, it's been a fantastic discussion. And uh, if you want to see more of this, if you go to 21stCenturyWide.com and you click at the bottom of all of our articles there's a tag uh, archive link so for space for space force for covid19 
for whatever, U.S. elections, et cetera, uh, Europe, uh, different Middle East. There's always a tag that you can click at the bottom of every article that will bring up a whole archive uh, of things that are related to that topic. So you can dive deep on the space issue uh, at the bottom of this on our website, 21stCenturyWired.com and like that and share those links if you find anything of interest do share it on social media we really rely on our readers our our viewers as well to share our work that's uh, absolutely important to us uh, in uh, getting people uh, back to uh, our website to look at some great material and the work of people like brian uh, burletic as well and many others so that's it uh, for this edition of 21 wire live we're going to be doing a couple of other programs this week uh because we're catching up because we had to take a couple of weeks off uh because we're running our winter fundraising drive but also because we're spending a lot of time uh doing uh written reports uh as well many of those you can see up at 21stcenturywire.com right now and uh, do listen to the sunday wire which just broadcast two days ago uh that's also at the top of our features section uh episode 364 um, it was uh, an incredible episode. We encourage people to go and tune in every Sunday to the Sunday Wire, although we might not be broadcasting this coming Sunday. We might be taking a week off, but we're there every Sunday uh, at 5 p.m. UK time, 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, and so also 21 Wire Live. The time frame shifts on this program when we do live streams, but you'll always get an alert by email. If you sign up to our email newsletter, you'll get an alert whenever we're going to be going live. Uh, and also, you'll be able to see the archive of our live streams from 21 Wire Live on our main page at 21stCenturyWire.com. Uh, so that's it for this edition. Uh, it's been great to join you. And uh, we're, again, really, really uh, excited about this conversation uh, that we've had with Brian Berletic on this. And what a fascinating topic of discussion it goes into every single aspect of human and military and geopolitical affairs and commercial and civilization so it's um i love i love this subject and we'll be covering it more uh in the future take care everybody and we'll see you probably tomorrow uh we'll be covering the world of high finance and also the independent investors and cryptocurrency uh with a special guest so stay tuned to our live stream there all the best and uh, we will see you next time.